This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. On January 22nd, 1972, Andy Kenyon was found stabbed and slashed to death on the steps of his San Francisco apartment. The circumstances surrounding the murder were pretty straightforward, and yet his killer or killers were never brought to justice. This is Monsters. Andrew Foster Kenyon was born on August 1, 1942 into an upper-middle-class family in Stevens Point, Wisconsin. He was a curious and playful boy who enjoyed school and had a large circle of friends. Andy's parents weren't really into parenting and they preferred to spend their time socializing with their high-society friends while their kids were left to find their own way. It was clear from an early age that Andy had a unique gift. While many kids are naturals at music or math, Andy's specialty was hustling. He was an exceptional salesman, starting with breeding and selling homing pigeons when he was just 8 years old. By 10, he was custom-building minibikes and go-karts, and by his early teenage years, he was selling magazine subscriptions door-to-door. At age 15, he took on his first employees who did the footwork for him while he raked in the cash. He bought a 1956 Bel Air as his first vehicle at age 16. He repainted and customized the car so it was bolder and louder than anything else on the roads. He did the same thing to a 26 T-Bucket and a 36 Chevy Coupe. That marked the start of Andy's lifelong passion for automobiles. His parents' garage and front yard was often filled with vehicle parts and the frames of half-built hot rods. As you might expect, being a teenager driving around town in a custom vehicle drew the attention of the authorities. Andy picked up more than his fair share of tickets for illegal modifications and the fines added up rapidly. It got to the point where he didn't have the cash to pay the fees and he was ordered to serve time in jail instead. Once that happened, his parents basically disowned him and they sided with the authorities who labeled him a good-for-nothing criminal. A no-goodnik. After that, Andy dropped out of high school and moved into his own apartment, but not before he met the love of his life. Andy met Geraldine when they were both students at Coverly High School in Palo Alto, California. He was actually dating her older sister, but the relationship was over almost as soon as it began. Jerry was a year younger than Andy, so they had to sneak out to see each other. Each night, they would cruise around in one of Andy's many vehicles to watch drive-in movies or see blues and jazz bands perform at local clubs. 
Right around the time Andy dropped out of school, Jerry found out she was pregnant. Andy asked her to move in with him, and the pair made plans to elope in a state where an 18-year-old could marry a 16-year-old without parental approval. Andy's parents caught wind of the plan and contacted Jerry's parents. Once they heard about the situation, they agreed to the marriage, and in 1961, Jerry and Andy were married in a small family ceremony in Reno, Nevada. Jonathan was born a few months later, right around the time Andy's career in magazine sales began to take off. Once again, he recruited his own sales team, and by the time he was in his early 20s, he was the top salesman for Look Magazine. In 1963, Andy decided to expand his business out of state, and the young family hit the road together. By then, Jerry was four months pregnant and struggling to manage a young child as well as taking the lead on the administration side of Andy's business. By 1964, the pressure was too much and Jerry took the children and moved back in with her parents in Palo Alto. Once their daughter Lori was born, Andy and Jerry reconciled and they decided to set up a permanent home base. That way, Andy could travel and Jerry could look after the children with support from her family. But then something strange started to happen. In those days, paychecks and bonuses came in the form of cash, but Andy was bringing home much more than Jerry could account for. He stashed it all over the house, hiding it inside the walls and under the cushions of their couch. When Jerry confronted him about the money, he told her that his boss Robert was involved in some very scary stuff. Andy never let on what he meant by that, but not long after the conversation, he was fired from Look Magazine after a falling out with Robert. The situation must have been bad because Andy's name was blacklisted amongst the entire industry and he was never able to work in magazine sales again. It's only in recent years that the truth about the dodgy dealings of the company who owned the magazine has come to light. They were investigated by the Federal Trade Commission for wire fraud, money laundering, and other illegal activities linked to magazine sales. A year after Andy was fired, Jerry discovered her husband was having an affair. She immediately kicked him out and filed for divorce. Despite the circumstances of their separation being less than pleasant, Jerry and Andy remained close. They spent a lot of time together with the children and continued many of the pastimes they had enjoyed when they first got together. Andy had struggled to hold down a job since his magazine career was cut short and he started dealing pot to make ends meet. It was through his dealing that he met and supplied some of the big-name rock artists of the time. Soon after, he had his first experience with the art of psychedelic liquid light projection. Andy was immediately interested in experimenting with the technique and he purchased his own kit. After that, he put on shows at his house and neighbors gathered to watch the magic he projected onto the walls of his living room. Andy was getting booked to perform the projections alongside some of his favorite music artists, but his newest talent was shut down in much the same way as his previous endeavors. In 1968, he was caught giving a can of beer to a girl who was underage. He was arrested and spent most of the summer locked up. It was during that stint in jail that Andy met the monster who had become darkly entwined with his fate, Eugene Santori. When Andy was released, he decided to move to North Beach in San Francisco. He rented a room and an apartment over the Camel Bar at the corner of Grant and Green. He quickly immersed himself in the counterculture movement where art, free love, and marijuana were pretty much core values. Roommates came and went, and the apartment became a hub for creatives and hippies to smoke weed, ponder art, and share their gifts. 
Andy was a generous and kind person, so when Eugene told him he was being released from jail, Andy invited him to stay at the apartment until he found his own place. Lori and John saw their father often, but John spent more time with him because he was old enough to stay alone with Andy over the summer. The pair spent their days walking the streets, collecting trash Andy would craft into his art pieces, or cruising around town in one of his beat-up vehicles. But John only got two of those summers with his father. On the evening of January 22, 1972, Andy went out bar hopping with his girlfriend, Margaret. Just before 2 a.m., they picked up a couple of cans of beer from a local store and walked back towards Andy's apartment. As they rounded the corner, a man stepped out of a doorway and confronted Andy. Andy told him not to mess with him while his girlfriend was around. Margaret was shaken by the incident and she decided to catch a taxi home rather than stay the night at the apartment. It was 2.15 a.m. when the bartender from the Camel Bar found Andy's body on the stairwell leading up to the apartment. He was still warm and there was blood everywhere. Andy's shirt was ripped open just below his stomach and his head had nearly been decapitated. But that wasn't what had caused all of the bleeding. Andy had also been viciously gutted. At 2.25 a.m., officers were dispatched to the scene to find Andy in a supine position with his feet resting on the sixth step and his head on the ninth. He was wearing a tan leather jacket, black leather pants, a paisley patterned shirt, an undershirt, and black motorcycle boots. Andy's cause of death was later determined to be a very large cut that went from the left ear to the center of his throat. Another deep stab wound had entered the left side of his throat near where it connects to the torso as well as another below the left collarbone. That injury severed the main coronary artery. Finally, there was a large slashing wound which had disemboweled Andy. Twenty minutes after officers arrived at the scene, they were joined by two inspectors from the homicide inspection team. Those men were Inspectors Jack Cleary and Frank Falzone. The detectives began their investigation by taking statements from the witnesses who were gathered around the scene. At 9.30 that morning, Falzone notified Andy's parents about the murder. He told them that there were currently no suspects, but that the SFPD would do everything in their power to bring the killer to justice. His words could not have been any further from the truth. A week after the murder, Falzone called to say he had arrested a suspect and collected a man's knife and boots as evidence. But he warned them that it was unlikely they would be able to match the blood to Andy, saying, quote, Unfortunately, his knife was boiled clean and the blood on his boots was covered up with some shoe polish. A couple of days later, he told them that without a blood match, they had no case against the man they had taken into custody. With no evidence, the suspect was allowed to walk free. That man was Eugene Santori. That would be the only real piece of information Andy's family were ever given about the case. For the next few months, they heard nothing. Geraldine became so frustrated by the lack of information that once a week, every week, she placed a call to Inspector Falzone for an update on the case. Every time, she was told there were no witnesses to the murder and no one had come forward with any information relevant to the crime. But then, a few months after Jerry began calling the inspector, he called and told her that a person in the psych ward had confessed to killing Andy with a knife. It was a huge relief for Jerry to finally have a name to put to her ex-husband's killer. Except when she asked who the person was, Falzone asked her, quote, Do you know his name? Jerry couldn't have been any more surprised by the question, so she asked how she would know his name, and Falzone replied, quote, 
Well, he says that the wife of the man he killed was in on it. It's only been in recent times looking back that Andy's family realized that was the first of many ways in which the SFPD threatened them to back off from asking any questions about the case. The threat worked. After that, Jerry only checked in with Falzone once a year, on the anniversary of Andy's death. Every time, she was told nothing had changed and that no new evidence had come to light to charge Eugene. Then, in 1984, they finally got some good news. Inspector Falzone called Jerry to tell her that Eugene had been incarcerated for a similar crime in the state of New York. He told her that Inspector Jack Cleary, who had worked with him on Andy's case, had flown out to interrogate the monster but that Eugene hadn't cracked under the pressure. He told her to take some comfort in knowing that Eugene wouldn't be getting out of prison anytime soon. Before he hung up, he reminded Jerry that there was no need to keep calling. He said, quote, If anything changes, I'll make sure that you're the first to know. The news felt like a consolation prize to Andy's ex-wife and kids, but there was nothing they could do about it. That was until Geraldine decided she wanted to see the monster responsible for stealing her children's father from their lives. She bought a plane ticket to New York and made it her mission to track down where Eugene was incarcerated and arrange a time to meet him face to face. Except, no matter where she went or who she called, no prisons had any record of a prisoner by the name of Eugene Richard Santori. She tried every spelling she could imagine, but still nothing. The whole trip had been a waste of time and Jerry was robbed of closure yet again. There were no new developments in the case for years after that disappointment. Lori, John, and Jerry attempted to do what they had been told and find comfort in the knowledge Eugene couldn't hurt anyone again. But they never gave up hope that one day their father's case would finally be solved. In 1992, the family became aware of DNA testing and its emerging role in solving cold cases. The revelation felt like a lifeline. That could be their moment to get justice for their father. They immediately requested that the knife and boots taken from Eugene on the night of the murder be tested. It took a couple of months for them to be informed that there wasn't enough DNA present on the items for a sample to be collected. A year after that, Inspector Falzone retired from the police force. But the family didn't find that out for another 14 years, and it was only because Lori called the department to see if further advances in DNA testing could be used to identify her father's killer. The new lead on Andy's murder investigation since Falzone's retirement was Inspector Joe Toomey. When Joe spoke to Lori, he told her it was a waste of time to test the items again and he refused to take another look at the case. When Lori visited him in person, he told her to leave the building. When she asked if she could look at the case files, he told her no, because I said you can't. So Lori tried a different approach. She called and left a voicemail on the detective's phone every single day. When she had access to a fax machine, she sent him letters begging him to take a closer look at the case. Finally, she got a result, but it wasn't what she had hoped for. Joe called and told Lori, quote, Listen, lady, if you don't stop calling, I'm going to lose your dad's case file. Do you understand me? I will lose the file and no one will ever see it again. After that, Lori and John knew they were on their own. No one in the police department was going to do anything to help them but they still had hope that if they found some new evidence in the case, it would encourage investigators to reopen it, so they began to look for evidence themselves. 
By chance, they had recently found out they could request a copy of the initial police report by visiting the SFPD records department. But when they arrived, they were told by the clerk that there was no record of any police report being filed about the murder. They were offered no explanation about why the report was missing. That was the first time Lori and John considered that there might be some sort of cover-up going on. Why else would there have been so little action on the case? Why else would there have been such hostility from the lead detective? And why else would there be no record of the most basic police report? With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Despite repeated requests to meet with superiors at the SFPD, Lori and John didn't get any movement until 2010 when they found out about a newly formed cold case unit. This time, when they contacted the lead inspector of the unit, she agreed to meet with them and share the entire case file as well as sending the boots off to be retested for DNA. It was a significant breakthrough for John and Lori. Surely the case file would offer them some insight into the investigation and some understanding about why there wasn't enough evidence to charge the lead suspect. On December 29, 2010, John and Lori finally got their meeting. Inspector Holly Para led them through the building and right away they could tell something was off. The whole building was shut down for the Christmas holiday and all of the hallways were dark. There was no one else around and John and Lori had the distinct feeling that Holly was doing something she wasn't allowed to do. All of that was weird enough, but they were about to find out that almost nothing had been done to find their father's killer in nearly 38 years. The entirety of the case file fit into a single manila envelope. On the front of the file was a note stating, quote, Suspect Eugene Santori. Picked up in Catskills, New York. Case discussed with D.A. Wisham. According to Wisham, insufficient evidence to warrant trip or extradition from New York of subject Santori. Inside the file, there were random bits of paper, scrunched up and flattened down sketches and handwritten witness statements. But there was not one note made by detectives about the progress or efforts in the investigation, and there were only a few items dated from the same year as the murder. There was no description of the knife they had been told about, and no mention of the boots which had been taken into evidence. There were no tape recordings of any interviews with suspects or witnesses. It was as if from the second Andy's body had been found, everyone had decided not to bother solving his murder. John and Lori weren't about to let that be their father's legacy, and so they decided to do the detective's jobs for them. They took all the information out of the file and methodically pieced together what evidence they had from the night of the murder. Thankfully, the file contained the initial police report, which they had been told was never officially filed. And then they found their first bombshell. The file contained a record of the original APB, which was put out after officers arrived at the scene. That revealed that just a couple of minutes before Andy's body was found on the stairs, he had been seen by a witness having a verbal altercation with someone. The witness provided a very detailed description of the person. 
They were described as a white male, approximately 31 years old, 5 foot 11 inches tall, 170 pounds, slender build, black hair, full bushy beard, wearing small round wire glasses, a hand-painted light color hat similar to a cowboy style but with a small brim and a light color jacket. The APB was a shock to Lori and John because they had been told from day one that there were no witnesses and no one worth speaking to in the case. And yet this witness could describe a person seen arguing with Andy down to the shape of their glasses and the hand-painted features of their hat. When they dug further into the file, they found out that the person who gave the statement was none other than Andy's girlfriend, Margaret, who also went by Marjorie. It was another surprise because the detectives told them that she had been on the other side of the city the night of the murder and she hadn't seen anything remotely related to the killing. Right behind Marjorie's initial statement about that night was a second undated statement she had given to the officers. That time, she revealed that Andy had told her he would be killed by someone before the new year. She also told the detectives Andy was being threatened by two Italians about money and she provided the name of one of the men, Gene Santori. Notably missing from the file was any mention of the statements given by Andy's two roommates, Gary and Mario. That was despite Gary telling John's mother that he told the police that he had seen Andy entering their building a few minutes before he was murdered. There was also no mention of the psych ward patient who had confessed to the murder months later. However, the case file did include a statement from Andy's newest roommate, David. David had seen Andy and Marjorie drinking with someone at a bar earlier that night. The file also contains statements taken from people who knew Andy less personally, like other tenants in the building or the owner of a local store. But it seemed everyone close to Andy had either not been interviewed or their statements had been removed from the case file. Significantly, when Andy's body was found, he only had two dimes and a penny in his pockets. Those who knew Andy told officers that he always carried cash, which led investigators to note that he had been robbed during the course of his murder. Despite there not being much in the file, everything that was there pointed to Eugene's involvement in the murder. He was named in several statements, and he was known to have a beef with Andy over an outstanding debt. The file indicated that Eugene was at least a possible suspect from the early stage of the investigation. He was spotted hanging around the crime scene four days later, and a police report states he was brought in for interrogation prior to booking. Yet his statement in the file was less than a page long. All he did was state that he knew Andy and that he was home on the night of the murder and that he used to have a beard. He also stated that he was on probation for car tampering and he provided the name of his probation officer. There's no indication that Eugene was actually interrogated about anything. The report notes that Eugene's bloody boots were confiscated as well as the knife he was carrying in his back pocket. Those were the same boots and knife that Falzone would later say were unable to be tested for DNA. Even if we consider that the original officers were, let's say, mildly incompetent, there is simply no explanation for why Eugene appeared to be off the hook before he was even on it. All of that, despite him being seen with the victim just minutes before the murder and hanging around the scene four days after. The way Eugene was handled is in stark contrast to how two other guys who had been seen with Andy earlier on the day of his murder were treated. They were brought into the station within five hours of the body being found, and they were interrogated, fingerprinted, mugshotted, and locked up overnight. Both men were later released due to lack of evidence. 
Eugene's 100-word statement and the confiscation of his boots and knife is pretty much the extent of his involvement in the investigation. His home was never searched and he was never questioned again in relation to Andy's murder. And there are other factors that should have been taken into consideration during the investigation. Take for example the fact that two years before Andy's murder, Eugene was arrested for threatening a woman with a knife over an unpaid debt. He was never charged with a crime. A second statement taken from Andy's newest roommate, David, also reported being witness to Eugene disemboweling a dog in front of a woman and her child just three months before the murder. The incident had gruesome similarities to the way Andy had been slashed open from heart to stomach as well as having his throat cut open, and yet Eugene was never questioned again. If all of that wasn't enough to convince investigators that Eugene was involved in Andy's murder, what happened next should have done it. Four weeks after Andy's murder, Eugene was arrested for assault with a deadly weapon. He had attacked a man with a golf club that caused severe lacerations to the man's face. The injuries required hospital treatment as well as 10 stitches. The victim of the attack was none other than a key witness in the murder, Andy's roommate David. Eugene was certainly implicated in the murder. He was seen with the victim minutes before the killing. He was caught hanging around the scene in the days after, and now he had violently attacked a witness, perhaps to keep him quiet. Even a newbie investigator could have put that math together, and Falzone was no newbie. He was a seasoned detective with decades under his belt. Lori and John weren't done with the police file yet, and it contained many more bombshells. In a handwritten note scrunched up in the file was the eyewitness report of a woman who had been working in a store across the road. She had actually seen the murder take place, and yet there was no name attached to the statement and no record of the statement ever being followed up. Having solid proof that the detectives were incompetent didn't bring any comfort to Lori and John. More than 38 years had passed since the murder. Many of the witnesses were dead, the detectives had retired, and justice was beyond reach. All of that could have left Lori and John feeling hopeless, but it didn't. It made them angry, and they became more determined than ever to prove Eugene was their father's killer. While they were looking through the file, Inspector Holly Para offered to run a report on Eugene's history. When she returned, she was holding a 19-page rap sheet. It turned out that the FBI had quite a lot of information on Eugene, including a number of aliases he used. There was Eugene Richard Giglio, Robert Eugene Shutina, Eugene Richard Improgno, Eugene Richard Santori with an E at the end, and Eugene Richard Santori with an I at the end. It turned out that the name Lori and John had been using to try and track him down since day one wasn't even his real name. They had been searching for Eugene Richard Santori with an E when his real name was Eugene Richard Imbrogno. As well as the shock of the names, there was something else the record revealed. Eugene had never spent more than a couple of months in prison at a time. His life of crime started at age 15. He was arrested for his first violent offense two years later. After that, he was arrested for stealing cars, burglaries, breaking and entering, disorderly conduct, narcotics possession, domestic assault, kidnapping, bribery, armed robbery, and second-degree assault. He was also arrested several times for assault with a deadly weapon, which included the use of handguns, rifles, shotguns, and an axe. But by far his preferred weapon was a knife. 
and yet most of the charges were dropped or Eugene's sentences were suspended. It was clear that he had benefited from special treatment his whole life, but the file didn't offer any insight into why. John and Lori took photographs of the information they saw in the file while Holly was out of the room printing Eugene's rap sheet. When they left the police department, John decided he was going to make a website to keep a record of all the information he found in relation to his father's case. In 2010, he established Kenyon.org. He started by uploading the photos he had taken of the police file as well as writing a list of names of everyone he believed was related to the case. He hoped that someday someone would see the site and come forward with information to secure a conviction against Eugene and close his father's case once and for all. Until that happened, he dedicated himself to finding out everything he could about the man he believed had murdered his father. First, he wanted to understand why Eugene was getting preferential treatment from the SFPD. The answer to that question goes as far back as the 1930s. During that time, Frank Lonza had established himself as the head of a mob family after winning a turf war against Irish gangsters Pete and Tom McDonough. That win only came about because the FBI had identified the Irish had some kind of hold over the SFPD. When they looked closer, they found that the entire police department and city hall were accepting bribes in the realm of a million dollars a year to look the other way. That would be more than $20 million today. The agent who carried out an investigation into the corruption wrote in his report that the only way to rid the city of fraud completely would be to legalize gambling, prostitution, and narcotics. The level of corruption ran so deep that he believed it would never be truly eradicated from the SFPD. When the report was released, those who had been identified ran for cover, which left the field wide open for the Lonza family to take the top spot. By the time Andy was murdered in 1972, the Lonza mob had been controlling the drug trade on the streets of San Francisco for nearly 40 years. John and Lori knew their father had been a small-time pot dealer, but it wasn't clear how that would have put him in the path of the Italian Mafia. It was only through speaking to some of their father's old friends and acquaintances that they found out that his life had spiraled since the separation from Jerry. He hadn't been able to hold down a job and was light on cash, so to make ends meet, Andy began dealing marijuana through connections he had with local bartenders. That put him in direct competition with the Italian Mafia. If they found out he was dealing on their turf, he would be ended. Forever. Andy was at a crossroads, go it alone and face the consequences once they found out what he was up to, or start giving the Mafia a cut of his take. Neither was a particularly appealing option, but John's research makes him believe his father chose to work with the Italians. If you can't beat them, join them. Somehow, Andy ended up in a significant amount of debt to the mob and the quantities he needed to deal started to grow. When that wasn't enough, he started dealing harder drugs like cocaine and heroin. John's research led him to believe his father wasn't using narcotics, only dealing. Andy's movements in the weeks before his murder indicate that at some point the growing debt had gotten out of control and that he was being pressured to repay it. Friends said that they had heard confrontations where men would demand money from Andy. He was also arrested for robbery just two weeks earlier, which friends say was out of character for him. All of that information was relatively straightforward to piece together. And yet there was nothing in the police file to indicate that the cops had ever explored a link between Andy's death and the Italian Mafia. 
Naturally, it was around that point that a new realization dawned on John. It was beginning to look more and more like the original investigator wasn't simply incompetent. He was a dirty cop. John and Lori could have come to that conclusion based on what they could tell was missing from the police file. Or they could have based their assumption on the fact that at every opportunity, Falzone had steered the investigation away from Eugene rather than towards him. But perhaps the most telling factor was that when they began to look for Eugene using the real name they had learned when looking at the file, they found out he had died in 1984. It was right at the same time Falzone had called their mother to inform her that she should take comfort in the fact that Eugene had been locked away in prison for a long time in New York. The swirling suspicion deepened when the family submitted a Freedom of Information Act request to the FBI for all records pertaining to Eugene. They were told their request was accepted, but none of the files could be found. The letter stated, quote, They might have been misplaced. Would Lori and John approach the lead detective from the FSPD cold case squad who had given them access to their father's file, they made a perhaps unsurprising discovery. Right after they had viewed the file, Holly Para had been demoted and removed from the department completely. They now believed the department was monitoring John's website. When John and Lori tried to speak to the new lead detective, they were told to never call again. The family have never received a reply to any subsequent emails or phone calls made to the cold case team. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. In 2016, the family were offered the services of a private investigator who lived in San Francisco and had read about the case. The PI got the same runaround from the SFPD and records department, but they made another interesting discovery. Andy's murder was never reported in any of the local newspapers, which was incredibly unusual for the time especially for such a brutal murder. The PI was unable to make any further breakthroughs in the case. Despite the setbacks, John and Lori refused to give up their two-man investigation. The person they believed had killed their father was dead. By then, they had spent years poring over old newspapers and police reports attempting to track down Andy's acquaintances, all without anything to show for it. But they were about to get another lifeline in the form of the internet. Finally, they had access to piles of freely available information without the barricades the official avenues continued to put in their way. Using online databases, they were able to track down Eugene's family and definitively connect them to the Italian Mafia. His uncle had been arrested for illegal gambling and bookmaking, and his father was a known gangster who had been arrested multiple times for fighting, robberies, forgery, and stealing vehicles. It seemed that all of Eugene's siblings and cousins had also joined the family business. It was clear that Eugene was not only associated with the Mafia, he was a key member of it, and one of his responsibilities had been collecting outstanding debts. John and Lori now had a definitive connection between Eugene and the Mafia, which might explain why Andy was murdered. But there were still so many unanswered questions in the case. Why hadn't the boots ever been run for DNA? 
Where were the statements taken from eyewitnesses who had seen the murder from across the road? And where was the statement from Andy's girlfriend, who was with him just minutes before he died? With everything they knew about Eugene, how had the DA determined there wasn't enough evidence to bring charges? John wanted answers to those questions, and in 2018, he published a 3,000-word article about the murder on the OZY website. In it, he revealed many of the bombshells and smoking guns he had uncovered, including corruption in the SFPD and the systematic cover-up of his father's murder. The article was a huge success, and it was shared widely across Discord and social media. The success of the piece emboldened John, and in 2020, he decided to write an open letter to the DA of San Francisco. He bullet-pointed every single lie that Andy's family had been told by detectives and how many pieces of basic information were missing from the file. He also highlighted the fact that even after 40 years, the bloody boot which had been taken from Eugene had still not been tested for DNA. John included specific requests for what he wanted done with the case, including DNA testing of the boots and knife which had been taken from Eugene, as well as an answer about whether key witnesses ever gave official statements. It's easy to see that by that point, John had nothing to lose. He sent copies of the letter to the mayor, the chief of police, the attorney general of California, and big-name media outlets. Ten days later, he received a single reply from the ADA to say that they were not responsible for cold cases. He was once again referred back to the cold case department at the SFPD, but all of his subsequent emails to the lieutenant in charge were ignored. When John followed up with the ADA, he was copied in on a please explain email to the head of the cold case department. Finally, Sergeant Levy from the department called him and asked what exactly he was looking to have done about his emails. John was frustrated about being asked the same question again, but he played along. It was the same game he had been playing ever since he started looking into his father's murder. Except when he asked for the DNA to be tested, the detective told him that the database might not find a match for any DNA they found. John reminded the guy that they weren't looking for DNA from a suspect, they were looking for his father's DNA on the items. If the blood was Andy's, then it would prove that Eugene had used the knife on his father, and also that he had been wearing the boots at the scene of the crime. But then the sergeant told him that Eugene might have simply borrowed the knife from someone and finding Andy's DNA wouldn't prove anything. John pointed him to Eugene's only statement where he told officers that the knife belonged to him. He had even explained that he used it every day in his work as a roofer. Then the sergeant told John there really wasn't anything he could do because he could only run DNA tests for active cases and Andy's case wasn't active. He told John he would consider mentioning it in the next meeting about which cases they worked on, but he gave no promises that anything would change. John tried to tell him all he wanted was two simple DNA tests run, but it was no good. The detective wasn't interested in hearing it. There was one further comment that added to the odd vibe of the whole conversation. John mentioned that he had a lot of evidence he had collected over the years, including his father's connection to the Lonza family because he was dealing drugs. The officer told him he had never heard of the Lonza mob. That was despite the Lonzas being the major players in the San Francisco drug trade for over 100 years. The officer told John he was born and bred in the area, and yet he hadn't heard of such a prominent criminal entity. It was a peculiar statement that only reinforced how deeply the corruption in the SFPD truly ran. A week after that conversation, Sergeant Levy called John back to give him some good news. He told John that they had decided to reopen Andy's case. They were going to run the DNA and put their full effort into solving the crime. 
The news came as an incredible relief to John, Lori, and their mother. But a week later, Sergeant Levy called John again to tell him that the case had already been cleared in 2008. He told John that the previous inspector had found new compelling evidence against the main suspect which was enough to clear the case. He referred to it as exceptional clearance. Except, when John asked what the evidence was, Sergeant Levy didn't have an explanation. In fact, he admitted that the report didn't indicate what had prompted the change in status. When John again asked for the DNA to be run, he was told there was no reason to do that because the case was closed. He was told, quote, Eugene Richard Imbrogno has been determined to be the person responsible for the death of Andrew Foster Kenyon. What more does your family want? Naturally, John responded that he wanted to be 100% certain or as certain as possible. He said, quote, I don't want room for any doubt. I want to be able to refer to Eugene as the murderer and not just the suspect. Sergeant Levy's only response was to say, quote, As far as the San Francisco Police Department is concerned, there will be no further investigation. The case is officially closed now. When John asked him to agree to make a public statement confirming the findings, the sergeant refused. John wasn't ready to give up the fight, and he demanded that the DNA be tested. The sergeant tried to push back, but in the end he realized John wasn't going to take no for an answer. He made John promise that once the DNA was run, he would give up and accept the finding. John agreed. A couple of days later, John received a call from the sergeant. He told John, quote, We swabbed the soles of the boots and found no usable DNA on them. That was despite Falzone and the cold case detective telling them that the boots were covered in blood. John demanded to see evidence that the boots had been sent to the lab for testing, but the sergeant refused to give him any more information. Finally, John told him, quote, Why don't you do me a favor, officer? Don't ever call my number again. Don't talk to me unless you're willing to actually help our family. You guys are acting like we've done something wrong, like we're the enemy, like we're the criminals, not the guy that murdered my father. John never received another phone call from the FSPD. He requested the paperwork related to the exceptional clearance, and when he received it, it simply stated that because Eugene had died, the case was closed. It did not provide any information about the supposed new evidence. John spent the next year compiling everything he had learned about his father's murder over the course of his own investigation. He hoped to release a book about the crime where he could detail exactly what he knew both about the circumstances of the murder as well as the dubious investigation, if that's what you could even call it. Pulling all of the tragic circumstances that led to the murder as well as his hopelessness in achieving justice for his father was a traumatic and depressing task for John, but he persevered. In 2023, he released the book, San Francisco's Hottest Cold Case, How I Exposed a Police Cover-Up and Solved My Father's Murder. If you want to read all about the history of San Francisco's corrupt police department, which extends right into the present, I urge you to purchase the book. Just before the book was published, John made one final attempt for answers. He resent his original letter, but added several more news outlets and superiors in both the police department and justice system he didn't receive a single reply. Around the same time, John was contacted by a writer from the Palo Alto Weekly, his hometown newspaper. Sue Dremen was a crime reporter who had read about the story online, and she told John she was interested in looking into the case. Sue discovered that if you approached a courthouse directly for records of cases tried there, you could get more specific information than what would be provided as part of a records check. 
John immediately requested files from the Catskills court system, which is the location mentioned on the front of Andy's police file. He hoped to find some explanation as to why he was let off so lightly time and time again. Sue also managed to make contact with the original detective on the case, Frank Falzone. Frank had refused to speak to John or Lori over the years, especially in light of their accusations of incompetence and corruption, but he did agree to speak to Sue. Their interview went something like this. Falzone started with a rundown of all his biggest achievements, working on the Zodiac Killer case, the Zebra murders, the City Hall murders, and the Night Stalker case. Falzone even made it into the Netflix docuseries about the Night Stalker. He has a couple of one-liners he was very proud of, including, quote, It wasn't my best punch, but it definitely wasn't my worst. And, pretty boy, I'm gonna split you in half from the top of your head to your arse. Basically, Falzone wanted Sue to know that he was a hero of the SFPD before he got to talking about why he had done such a shameful job investigating Andy's murder. He told the reporter, quote, I can't create witnesses. I can't create evidence. It's very hurtful to me. It hurts me to this day that we couldn't make an arrest in this case. A man got away with murder. It's a case that I've lived with. I could not come up with that key piece of evidence. I went the extra mile in this case. I wanted to solve it for her. The mother, Geraldine, was a good woman. A very, very caring, loving woman. And her heart was broken. Falzone didn't mention that he had asked Geraldine out on a number of occasions during the course of the investigation. Nice. Not long after the article went live, John received a stack of papers from the courthouse in the Catskills. There were 198 pages of records related to Eugene from his numerous times in front of the courts there. Sure enough, the very first page detailed a horrific attack Eugene had carried out on his partner four years after Andy's murder. He had beaten her with a baseball bat, then beat her with his fist, then stomped on her when she was on the ground. Then he threw her against the wall and choked her. When the woman's mother came to her aid, he beat and choked her as well. It was effectively attempted murder, and yet he was charged with third-degree assault, fourth-degree criminal mischief, and possession of a weapon. He was sentenced to six months in jail and three years of probation. That was just one in a long line of serious crimes where Eugene had been let off with less than a slap on the wrist. Everything else in that stack of pages indicated more of the same treatment. Despite the passage of more than 50 years since Andy's murder, Lori and John have continued their attempts to talk with as many people as possible who knew their father. There have been partners of his roommates and people who knew Andy through the music and art scene. Everyone they have spoken to about the murder believes Eugene was responsible and that the cops knew it from day one. Everyone also knows that the cops covered it up, but knowing all of that doesn't bring peace or closure. John has faced a number of criticisms for his decision to release the book. Many people have warned him that drawing attention to the case will put him in the crosshairs of the mafia or the police departments and organizations he has criticized. To that, John says, quote, Many people don't have the guts to question anything, but I refuse to live a lie. I refuse to accept being lied to by anyone, and I refuse to keep my mouth shut when I know the truth. Well, John, I'm 100% in agreement with you on that. If we continue to allow people who believe they're above the law to threaten us into silence, they'll never be held accountable for their actions. John's research makes him believe that Eugene did not act alone in the murder of his father, but as yet has not been able to put a name to any of his accomplices. To this day, the DNA on the boots and the knife has never been tested. 
John believes the FSPD may have destroyed the case file and evidence completely after they declared it cleared. He suspects the FSPD refused to test the DNA because it would provide them with a profile for Eugene. Once a profile is recorded in CODIS, it won't ever go away, and that would mean the system might match Eugene to other crimes he was responsible for. If that happened, it would further indicate that Eugene benefited from special treatment. In other words, if they investigated Andy's murder all the way to its confronting conclusion, they would have the blood of many more victims of this monster on their hands. But covering it up only makes them monsters as well. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility. Call 911 or call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline by simply dialing 988 in the United States. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you may be facing. If you are a member of the LGBTQ community and suffering from discrimination, depression, or are in need of any support, please contact the LGBT National Hotline at 1-888-843-4564 or go to lgbthotline.org. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our merchandise at thisismonsters.com. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.